Welcome to the Vintage Podcast. Today in the studio, I've got two fantastic new talents, both of them intrigued by mythical subjects. We have Carrie Andrew talking about her debut novel, The Swan Song, and Imogen Hermes Gower talking about The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. Joining me first is Imogen, who's going to plunge me back into the world of 18th century Georgian London, a city full of cabinets of curiosities, merchants, amazing sights, prostitutes. Everything was going on there. Welcome, Imogen. Imogen, welcome. In fact, on the day of your publication. Thank you. And the day of your publication party. (gasps) Yes. Which I understand is being held in, in high style with gin and mermaids. It is in a proper 18th century bookshop. Um, yeah, Hatchards and Piccadilly is the real deal. It's exciting. Exciting moment after all these months and years of preparation for you. It's really coming together. But this book took a lot. It was a long time in Genesis, wasn't it? It was, yeah. I think I spent a long time with, like, several years with the idea, kind of knocking it around before I even started properly writing it. So I'd written it. I had the idea. The characters came to me all at once, and I wrote it as a short story. And then I didn't do anything with it for maybe two or three years um I think partly because I was really afraid of the amount of research it would involve I'm quite exacting with my reading you know I want the novels that I read to convince me um and I was very afraid that the amount of depth I would demand of myself into the 18th century I just wouldn't be capable of I didn't know how to orientate myself in that research. Um, you also come from that background, don't you? You come do. from a museum background. Your degree was in archaeology and art history. Mm-hmm. And you you first got the idea for The Mermaid by seeing A Mermaid. A Mermaid, yes. Um, Less yes, so, pleasant than that might sound, yes, I understand. Yes, horribly, a horrible little thing. It's actually, so it's currently in the Harry Potter exhibition at the British Library, but it is usually in the British Museum in the Enlightenment Gallery, which is kind of set up or preserved as it would have been in the 1750s when the museum was first opened. So it's a real, like, mishmash of bits and pieces. Um, there's, like, uh, bits of Egyptian stuff and there's pieces of textile and masks and things that Captain Cook brought back and then there's there's a stone that's meant to look a bit like Chaucer which was in Hans Sloane's original collection. Does it look um, like Chaucer? Weirdly it does it's like a cross section through this um, stone with a lot of striations and it does actually kind of look like this bearded man is in the stone um, so all of these just weird, disparate curiosities that people... I realise, of course, that I'm not sure what Chaucer looked like or how I would He's have a just very, got, like, this point... Of, imagine, like, a that. man from the 13th century. Like, he, like a hood and a little beard. Um, but I thought it was brilliant that someone was like, this goes in a museum. This is important. Um, uh, and so The Mermaid was part of... is now part of that collection. Um, it was made in the 18th century... Um, and it was probably made in Japan either um, as a representation of a ninho, which is a kind of water spirit, or 
purposefully to dupe Dutch sailors who came through and saw these items and really did think that they were mermaids. So it's made from the body of a monkey stitched onto a fish's tail. And there are quite a lot in the UK still, you know, often in regional museums that still have that kind of cluttered curiosity-ish feeling. Um, And they would have been brought into Europe with great excitement and exhibited and sold and owned by very great gentlemen in their, you know, kind of Wunderkammer collections for their own private entertainment. Um, So, yes, this mermaid is in a corner of the museum. I used to go and just, like, have a look at it. You were working at the museum I was working at the the museum, and you kind of circulate through the galleries. You rotate through them over the weeks, so you end up seeing everything, I guess, and having relationships with particular items and rooms. Um... And the mermaid was just always so creepy and frightening, like just... Not at all what we think of Not what you think of. When no. someone says, oh, have you seen the mermaid? We've got a mermaid. You, you're like, how can this be? This is so exciting. It must be wonderful. And when you see it, I think it's the shock. It, like, you kind of recoil. It's a horrible-looking, quite frightening creature. Quite a good thing to send children to to have a look at as well because they're always quite um, powerfully affected buy it it's easy for you um, to say you don't have to get them to sleep that night no i know <laughs> i know that's someone you just else's them problem send them back to yeah i think it's good for them a bit of healthy terror it's good um but it's a fascinating thing this is essentially where our idea of mermaids in popular culture comes from is it that well, it's this idea when there was an enormous maritime presence across the world and people were going and discovering things and bringing them back Yes, I think London during that period was an exciting time because these things were being brought back. Like, you could see mostly dead, stuffed creatures from everywhere across the world. I think it's really easy to wonder why people would be taken in by this fake mermaid. But it's to forget that no-one would ever have seen a lot of wild animals in their lives to date. Like, when Captain Cook, he brought back... um, the flayed skin of a kangaroo from Australia. He did not try and put one on the boat and transport it across the sea. He got a dead one and he skinned it and when he got it back home, he had it stuffed. Um, So I think people were very used to seeing stuffed specimens that had straw and wires and stuff or and stitches on mm, them mm. that so y- it would be much harder to use your critical faculties and say no this is definitely a composite creature of a monkey stitched to a fish and i think actually when the um duckbill platypus was first brought back people were like just forget it like this is ridiculous you've clearly faked this it's not a real thing because they were so used to not knowing what could be real and what could be fake and to them that just seemed ridiculous whereas a mermaid already existed in the public imagination people wanted to see it people already associated mermaids with the sea and long voyages and that was almost a thing and that, that goes way back further yeah obviously. much 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 further right back in sort of myth and legend definitely and the idea of course of something that might bewitch yes a creature that might bewitch that you could in some be way. powerful and maybe destructive um it's kind of interesting though during that period how these two images of a mermaid existed together so there is that old traditional sexy dangerous mermaid out there luring sailors to their death in and it's quite an old kind of old-fashioned british kind of you know the, the same way that 
elves and fairies are quite dangerous and they equivocate and they lure you away. It's dangerous to go into their space. I think the mermaid myth was very similar to that, that it's a dangerous supernatural creature that you shouldn't mess with. But then at the same time, there are these fake mermaids that are being brought over which don't look the same at all, which are scary and tiny and wizened and small enough to put in a display cabinet. And definitely during the early 19th century, there are quite a lot of letters in um, into newspapers, especially from Scotland, um, from people saying that they've seen these kind of mermaids in the sea, these quite scary, not very humanoid things that are like maybe two to four feet long. Um, they don't have language. They're not attractive. They're just kind of creepy. So I think then... Yeah, these two different images of mermaids kind of existed alongside each other. What were those things actually, do we think, or do we have no idea? Not a clue. It strikes I mean, me that, I mean, something was telling them this isn't just a particularly repulsive fish. Yeah, that they, I don't know if it's like a kind of mass hysteria or it might, it could have been a prank, of course. It could be either a group of people getting in on telling this story to amuse the rest of the village or someone dressing up and putting something, you know, staging something, which did happen. Um, or people really, I, whatever they saw, they made sense of it like that. Like, um, what is that? I think it was in the 15th century, though. A lot of people saw dragons flying around in the sky. It was seen independently by a lot of different people. And it's it's hard to make sense of that now, but I think... The way that we view the world is extremely subjective. That we, I think that, we don't want to get too deep, but I think quite often we see what we're culturally primed to expect to see. So if a mermaid is in our kind of visual intellectual vocabulary, that's what we'll see, even if it actually to someone else's eyes looks absolutely nothing like a mermaid. Yes, so I suppose I the, yeah. yes, the, the, the dragons, I mean, the modern parallel is UFOs, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. That, like that. Everyone sees, everyone makes sense of weird things in the sky as it's aliens and they always have this, you know, they're in a range of particular shapes and people kind of have, like, categorise them in their mind of different types of aliens there are and different types of flying saucers. Like, yes, it's exactly the same. We have... UFOs in our cultural currency, so we that's how we explain peculiar things. Imogen, I brought you from mermaids to UFOs. <laughs> I apologise and I must that's say okay. back onto Jack and in the 18th century. Yes, please. But basically, this is what your story is built around. There is a merchant, mm-hmm. the Mr Hancock of yes. the title, and there is a mermaid, or is there, uh, and there are an awful lot of courtesans and madams and prostitutes. And it's very interesting to be talking to you uh, about that right now because we're watching in the news mm. uh, this unfolding, horrific story of men being entertained at very, very uh, high-profile, high-prestige, extremely expensive events, essentially with women there to entertain them, with clearly very blurred lines about where that entertainment might start and end. And it struck me when I was reading those reports, I thought, well, hang on, we are still in the 18th century, in a way. I think it's being discussed more and more recently that men have a 
particular idea of what they can expect from women? How much attention, how much physical contact, how much charm and interest they deserve to have turned on themselves? And I think something like the President's Club really shines a light on that, that there are huge swathes of people who still think that they have a right to women's bodies. The women that you describe in your book so vividly, um, and in particular, of course, the the, the madams, mm. um, is there a sense that everybody knew what they were getting into? I think a large proportion of people knew what they were getting into. I think any woman who lived in the world at that time understood that she was dependent on men in one way or another. And whether those men are good to them or not really is what dictates their whole life. I think the difference now is that it's much easier for women to have professions and to be seen as single agents in the world rather than being connected to a family. And if you're not, then how on earth are you going to support yourself? And, like, there is very little opportunity of satisfying self-sufficiency, I think, for women in the 1780s. There were lots of jobs that they could do, um, but it was always dangerous to be a woman in the world alone and it was the weight of public opinion on what you might be doing was always dangerous as well, that any woman who had a profession who was seen to be doing services, whatever they were, in exchange for money was already one step away from prostitution. She should have been part of a family unit and have someone else providing for her, having that transaction with her husband instead. And I think the women in my novel understood themselves as being part of a man's world and having to do what it took to get on in it. It was very important to you, I know, to to make sure, as you were saying at the beginning of our conversation, you love books that are going to convince you. Mm. From the reviews that I've read and my experience myself of reading the book, you have convinced people. Um, Do you feel wedded to the historical novel? No, I don't think that I would only write historical novels. Um, I think that with this book I wanted to do a particular thing and a lot of that had to do with the language and the mentality of the 18th century. But no, that was something I was playing with and wanted to explore as deeply as I could. I I don't know, I think I quite often start a book with a kind of with a question and it's a process of inquiry to answering that. So no, the history the historical element is not the most important thing, I think, to the core of the book or the core of my work. Imogen, thank you so much for coming in and best of luck with the rest of your very, very busy schedule talking about the book (laughs) and congratulations. Thank you very much. Cheers. From a very bustling city to a very, very unpopulated mysterious landscape. I'm delighted now to be joined by Kerry Andrew. Um, Kerry Andrew, thank you so much for coming to join us today. And you're going to tell me all about your debut novel, uh, Swan Song, which came out of the other part of your life, didn't it? Yeah, it did. So I'm a a musician by trade uh, and I do lots of different things. uh, But one of the things I've done more recently is develop... uh, my work as an alt folk soloist so I, I've really always been interested in folk stories and folk songs um, and I've got this alter ego You Are Wolf which is now expanded into a band so it's a little bit complicated but there's You Are Wolf and You Are Wolf explores uh, old folk songs and stories but tries to put a bit of a fresh spin on it um, and 
when I was starting to think about writing, well, I, I started doing a course, a Faber Academy uh, short-term course, and I decided to do the same sort of thing as I did with my music for some of the exercises. So I would uh, take a folk ballad, a folk song that I knew, take the story from it and try and just tell it in a short story sort of way, but but trying to do something new with it. What sort of what sort of ballads? Just give us an example um, of the kind of thing that might yeah, give you a okay. story. Well, well, I remember the first one I did was, well, it's from uh, uh, one I used to sing called All Things Are Quite Silent, and it's about a man who has gone to sea... And the woman is lamenting. There's a lot of lamenting women in ancient folk ballads. Um, and uh, she thinks he's gone because it's been seven years. And he, uh, someone rocks up and says, I'm making this really long convoluted story, but rocks up and says, your uh, love is dead. I fought with him. And she's, uh, he's, he says that I can marry you instead. And she says, that's horrendous I will never marry anyone else because he was my only love and he says but wait it was actually me all along and rips his you know fake beard off or what have you oh but that sort <laughs> um, of story that goes across story. all kinds of art forms doesn't it well, do yeah. you recognise your lover is yeah, your yeah. is your fidelity going to go yeah, through the test yeah. your constancy yeah, I suppose that's it. And just just what you say is is correct. It goes across art forms, and and so many of these stories and songs boil down to a few uh, real tropes, I suppose. And that's probably one of them. Well, let's just just go back into not to to put you on the spot and to give us a whole history of folk music. I would um, fail utterly, but, I think. <laughs> but essentially, a lot of folk traditions, and we're kind of talking about the British Isles prim- yeah, primarily in, yeah. in, in the in your context, yes, aren't we? Yeah. Um, that's how they started life, wasn't it? As little stories that got set to music. Is that is that right? I don't know the answer because, you know, it's before anything would have been recorded. Mm. But yeah, they would have been uh, stories invented, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, they often started out as something more supernatural. Um, and then... Uh, as people learn more about the world, we might be talking sort of 400 years ago now, some of those supernatural elements might have been shorn away. So sometimes the more ghostly uh, elements might have been sort of disappeared as the songs passed down from generation to generation because that's the whole thing, is that people would just sing them, uh, you know, round the fireside or, or what have you, or in the fields, um, and they would change the stories as as they saw fit. And that, that's what I really love about folk songs and stories and what's sort of essential to the book as well is that there's never just one version they can be shaped and changed mm. Mm. As and they like. are rooted in communities which again is not to say that they can't go across communities yeah. and change places and you don't find uh, the same story essentially in different kind of settings yeah. but they do have that route to community which is also at the heart of your book isn't it they they can do they yeah and they're often uh, specific folk songs might come from a specific community but mm. the thing is then they also bleed so you know who knows where they they started from um, and, and the thing I find also interesting uh, my book is Swan Song and it's got a swan theme um, is is that if you look at the swans um, in folklore, you find them all over the world. So you don't just find them in um, Scandinavia and the British Isles. You find uh, them in Greek you, mythology. Yeah, you find them in Greek yeah. mythology, but you also find it, them in African mythology mm, mm. Um, and, and just about everywhere. And that's what I find interesting, that, you know, they probably didn't ever start from one source. I think they all sort of started from imaginations uh, because we look for the same things, I think, at the end of the day in stories, and somehow they, they keep bubbling up I to the surface. I guess the idea, too, that animals are so at the heart of so many creation and foundation stories, aren't they? Yeah, and I, I think animals are there because they were just all, particularly, you know, have historically been all, all around us and and emblematic of 
many things. Um, birds are often emblematic of freedom because of flying, but uh, I guess there's all sorts of things really. And yeah, I, I'm always, I'm particularly interested in um, a lot of the folklore that's around the natural world. I don't know why, I just, it's just, I feel very attached to the natural world. And so that's sort of my way into it sometimes, I have to I say, you started talking about wolves. We've gone on to swans. You're wearing a very beautiful scarf, but it's covered in foxes. Well, I'm obsessed with foxes as well. Uh, yeah, I just really, I really love um, British wildlife, particularly just because that's, that's where I'm from. And I've always liked going out and, you know, having walks. And You're did, from the countryside? So. No, absolutely not. I'm from a really boring little town. No offence to my little town in Buckinghamshire, but... Um, but as a family, we would go out and, and walk and walk in the woods and go on UK holidays and, and walk on beaches and up mountains and things. And so it's just always appealed to me. Um, and so I guess I'm, I'm particularly attracted to British wildlife just because it feels n- nearer. <laughs> you know, zebras don't have the same effect. You did resituate yourself or rather your protagonist for this book, for Swan Song. And it also came out of a particular song, didn't it? And I think we're going to hear that song now can you just say what it is describe what it's about yeah it's uh it's molly Bourne, which is a, a beautiful folk song and i think one of the reasons it particularly appeals to me is you know how i said that a lot of folk songs have a woman lamenting for various reasons they've been made pregnant uh their lover has left them their lover has made them pregnant and then left them etc etc and, and there's something about this one that's very touching because it's a very tragic story um in which uh, the, the man is the person who is is left bereft. And I think I think I've only been thinking about that recently, but I think that must be part of the reason that it it stands out mm. is that it feels particularly touching uh, because he's made a terrible mistake that he did not mean to uh, to make and uh, has been left absolutely bereft, and it's really tragic. Let's hear it. She sat there, 
watching the rain. She felt her arms prick and her arms blade. Her neck soared. Her mouth hardened into amber. And she was frozen into a heart shape. And she flew. Now, we stopped that song, didn't we? Why? Uh, because if you hear the whole song, you you hear rather a lot of the story in my book. Um, it's very spoilery. I, I, I need to learn as I'm talking about this novel, uh, if people say, what's the, what's the folk song about? Just not really to say, because I quite like the idea of people, most people won't know the story. Um, I quite like the idea of people learning it through this book. <laughs> so... Let's come on to Swan Song, the book, Mm -hmm. and just tell us, apart from that moment of it being inspired by a piece of music, Mm. what was your original conception for it as a book? Uh, Well, it it did come out of that. It came out of thinking, oh, I want to, let's try this again. Let's try this with a folk song, but in an expanded version. And it did come out of the end of my course. I was, uh, our last task was to write the first 3,000 words of your novel in inverted commas, what might become a novel. And so I just started and just kept going um, and kept developing um, my my take on this story. But uh, what I try and do is something different. So uh, as I said before, I'm really interested in how uh, there isn't just one version of a song, but, but many. And so I call the song Molly Bourne, which is one version of the song, but there are lots of versions in which she might be called Molly Ban or Molly Bond or Polly Van or Polly Vaughan, etc. And and the stories slightly change as well. And so I take Polly Vaughan as my protagonist and she's, it's, it's, uh, roughly contemporary set and she's a 20 year old uh, English student who is uh, decides to go up and join her mum on a house sit in the West Highlands of Scotland because something very dark has happened in uh, London and she wants to get away very quickly um, and so it's about her story but then it's also about another version of the song another story that sort of comes in and it's about the relationship between those two versions of the song so it's essentially about Polly and Polly uh, encountering some strange things in in the West Highlands and it's sort of all coming together Kerry thank you so much that was really fascinating my pleasure Thank you to both Imogen and to Kerry, and it's my pleasure to have talked to them both about their fascinating debut novels. Please join us next time on the Vintage Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen. She's made-